Hey, good morning. Happy December to each one of you. Are you a fan of movie prequels? Do you like movie prequels? A prequel is a sequel that takes place before the original film, right? There have been many famous prequels throughout cinema history. Some of them are beloved. Many of them are behated. But the purpose of a prequel is to explain how a particular character or circumstance came to be, right? So Star Wars episodes one to three were written after episodes four to six to explain to us how Anakin became Darth Vader, right? Should have given you a Spoiler alert there, but if you don't know that by now, that's on you. The Godfather 2 explains how the Corleone family came to America and became the Godfathers, right? So prequels are uh, helpful in helping us to understand how a particular circumstance or character came to be. Now, when we read about the birth of Jesus, the very first Christmas, we normally start with Matthew chapter number one, Luke chapter number two, the classic Christmas passages. And certainly those are the heart of the Christmas story. They begin with the the birth announcement and the pregnancy and then the the coming of Jesus, certainly they're very important. But if you're paying really close attention, you'll discover that there are actually hints in these Christmas passages that the story of Christ goes back much further than the New Testament. That there are actually some verses in the Old Testament that tell us, that predict the coming of Jesus. Now you probably know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is in the Old Testament, everything happened before the birth of Jesus. And in the New Testament, everything that happens is after the birth of Jesus. So Christmas is literally the dividing line, the defining moment in the the two testaments there in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we have these prequel verses, we could call them. Verses that tell the backstory of what we read in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. Verses that help us to understand, like, why did the circumstance and situation in surrounding Jesus' birth, why did it play out exactly the way it did? It gives us a lot of context, a lot of help, and a lot of understanding. Now, if you're paying really close attention when you read Matthew 1 and Luke chapter number 2, you're going to notice there is a phrase that occurs several times throughout these chapters of the Bible. And the phrase says something like this. It'll be talking about things that happened, you know, Mary and Joseph and the traveling on the donkey and all that. And then it'll say, all this happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through his prophet. And then it'll quote some Old Testament passage, one of the prequel verses. And this is, this phrase is a clue to us that God has been planning and writing the Christmas story long before the New Testament, long before the birth of Jesus, God was preparing the way for our Savior to come. So in this new series, Christmas Before Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to be reading the traditional Christmas passages, but when we come across one of those phrases, all of this happened so that the word of the Lord who was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, we're going to pause. We're actually going to look at what that prophecy actually was. And in the process, here's what I think. In the same way that when you watch a prequel of a movie and then you go back and you watch the original, you're like, whoa, this has so much more interest and meaning and like I'm picking up on details that I never understood or knew before. You can appreciate it in a brand new way. I think the same thing can be true with Christmas. Like it's easy for Christmas to kind of become like routine and you're like, yeah, I know all these verses. I've heard all these stories. I've sung all these Christmas songs, except for when they throw in like a variation. And I don't know if you were like me, but I started just going right into the chorus and I was way off. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. 
you know? But basically, Christmas is the same year after year. But if we were to come to understand these prequel verses, the Old Testament passages that give us a lot more context and understanding around Christmas, I think this holiday could be so much richer. I think it could satisfy and nourish your soul in a way that maybe Christmas hasn't done in a very, very long way. Give you a deeper appreciation for just how wonderful it is that Jesus was born as a baby and he became our Savior. So what I want to do is I want to look at the first section in this series, Matthew chapter number one. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. These are super familiar. You've probably heard these verses, but maybe I can show you something you haven't seen before in them. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. The the Bible says this, this is how Jesus, the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, highlight that phrase in your mind, because we're going to come back to it today. While she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I go any further, I was just, when I was putting this message together this week, God just grabbed a hold of my heart and he says, Daniel, I want you to highlight that passage. There's going to be somebody there on Sunday that feels like they are at a dead end in their life, that feels like all the circumstances in life are against them, their relationships are failing, their finances are a mess, they have uncertainty about their future, they feel depressed or down, they don't see a path forward. And they are asking God to provide in whatever way they can think of. God, the answer that I need is more money. God, the answer that I need is an apology. God, the answer that I need is a promotion. God, the answer that I need is this and this and this and this. And and I just believe it would be worthwhile for us to remind ourselves that the path forward, the answer to our problems, the, the basis and foundation for any work that God might do in our lives is what this verse says right here. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that God works things out. Now, the Holy Spirit can choose to use doctors and medication, relationships, your boss opening a door for you. He can do it that way. He can do it miraculously. It doesn't matter. But I just want to give some encouragement to somebody that's here today. And you're like, boy, I don't see any path forward. The path forward is in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is always a path forward through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, which was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Joseph was a good dude. You guys, he had a lot more character than most of us. All right. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by not some other guy but the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Then in verse 22, we see this phrase that I told you about a moment ago. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Verse 23 quotes an Old Testament passage. Look, behold, check this out. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when Joseph woke up from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until her son was born and Joseph named him Jesus. Man, there is so much that I could pull out of this passage this morning. I want to highlight a few things that, again, I believe will help you to appreciate Christmas a whole lot more. We read there in verse 22 that that interesting quote, all of this that we just read happened to fulfill what was spoken of through the Lord's prophet. And then 
uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter number seven, verse 14. Now, uh, one of the reasons I often encourage you guys to like bring your own Bible to church, man, you should do that. Or at least like read the Bible on your phone along with me. Don't just stare at the screen and things is that with, within a, a, a printed copy or a digital copy of the Bible, you're going to discover there are lots of helpful things that are included for you. And one of them is something called footnotes. So as you're reading a passage, you might see a letter or a number that's kind of like hanging out right there on a particular word. And if you were to click on it on your phone, or if you were to drop down to the bottom of the page there in your printed Bible, you'll often get some helpful explanation. You might get some extra context or different translation or anything like that. And um, here in this passage, if you read verse 23, you'll notice that there's an asterisk or a footnote marker of some kind. And when you drop to the bottom, it tells you, hey, this verse right here is a link. It's a quote. It's a hyperlink back to Isaiah chapter number seven, verse 14. And that passage says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, there's a bit of irony here when we read this verse, okay? Because the thing that's supposed to jump out off the page at us when we read that that particular sentence is the idea that there would be a baby that's born that in some way is so special that people would look at the baby and come to the conclusion that in him, God is with us. Like, that's mind-boggling. The sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe has somehow taken on tangible, visible, physical form. He has come to dwell among us. What? I want to know everything I possibly can about that. That section of Isaiah 714 is where our minds and eyes are supposed to go. But our minds and eyes don't go there, do they? We go to the part of the verse that says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we're like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Just a minute here. Um, God knows everything. And I don't mean any disrespect, but like, does God understand that virgins can't get pregnant? That, that, that's not how it works. Has anybody explained the birds and the bees? Um, it, you need a man and a woman. So what does this mean? We get hyper fixated and focused on the virgin aspect of this particular prophecy. And that's not a bad thing because it turns out the virgin birth of the Messiah is very important to the Christmas story. Yes, but it's important to the meaning or understanding of the Christmas story as well. And so today what I want to do is I want to focus a little bit on this part of the, the Christmas narrative, this weird detail that Jesus was born from a virgin, right? Um, This virgin birth of Christ raises a lot of really interesting questions, or it should anyway, okay? Why would the arrival of the Savior require a virgin birth? Like, that's a, like, why? Isn't there some other way? The, couldn't the, the Savior have been conceived through normal means? Couldn't he, have, he, couldn't he have just been born from Mary and Joseph and them making a baby naturally? Why did the Savior even need to be born in the first place? Like, why would the Savior, God in the flesh, come as a baby, right? We read at the end of Jesus' uh, ministry that he ascended to heaven in a cloud. Why couldn't he have just asc- descended from heaven in a cloud? He could have just showed up, ah, oh, here I come and the savior has arrived. Why through a baby and why through a virgin birth? Like, doesn't the whole virgin part of this make the story real hard to believe? 
Honestly, there are so many people that have rejected the Christian faith because they read this and they're like, you guys are so silly. You believe that a virgin got pregnant? Mm -hmm, I'm sure she did. That's nuts. And so they reject it out of hand. If God had kind of done it another way, if he had left out the virgin part of the story, then I'm sure a lot more people would be willing to accept it in our day. But you know, it's not just in our day. Understand the idea of a virgin getting pregnant and giving birth was just as ludicrous to the people of the first century as it is to the people in the 21st century. Like, okay, in Jesus day, people were pre-modern and pre-scientific, but they knew how babies were made. Okay. They weren't dumb. They understood that a woman cannot get pregnant by herself. There has to be a man involved. And so they would have heard that a virgin's going to give birth and said, what? That's ridiculous. That's completely nuts. And then another question, maybe the last question that we could um, focus on this morning that comes to my mind is like, how can we be sure that the whole virgin birth aspect of the story didn't come about centuries after Jesus died because his followers started, you know, maybe originally they were like, yeah, he's our rabbi. And then a couple of generations of Christians go by and they're like, oh, he wasn't just a good teacher, but he was a holy man. And then a couple more generations go by and they're like, oh, he wasn't just a holy man, but he was the Messiah, the son of God. And then it was like, oh, he wasn't just the Messiah and the son of God. He's God himself in the flesh. And over time we see the myth built. And in order to support the myth, we started to invent all these other details. Like he was born from a virgin and he never sinned. And how do we know that this isn't just myth and legend that accumulated over the centuries uh, from Jesus followers? Those are all really, really good questions. And if you can... If you can come to a decent answer on them, I think you'll appreciate Christmas a little bit more. So I want to answer them to the best of my ability. Why don't we start with the simplest question? Was Mary really a virgin when she got pregnant? Uh, the New Testament certainly presents her as one. It says very explicitly that she is. But I had an issue with this, okay? When I became a Christian, you know, late teenage years, uh, first Christmas, I remember sitting in church and I'm reading these stories and the pastor is saying, yeah, Mary was a virgin and God miraculously conceived the Savior in her. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. God's powerful. He can do anything. Amazing. Yeah, rah, rah, I was all about it. But a year later, I had a crisis of faith about this exact issue, and that's because in that intervening year, I had been growing in my faith. I was so hungry to learn and to get closer to God and develop in my understanding of the story and the scripture and all that sort of stuff. And so I was doing some reading and I came across an article that had been written by a skeptic and the skeptic said, all right, I'm gonna let you in on a dirty secret. Something Christians have been hiding throughout the centuries. A little detail that exposes that Jesus' birth wasn't miraculous. It was actually pretty normal. And all of this supernatural, miraculous stuff, that was all added later. This article claimed that the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7:14 for virgin was the word Alma. Alma. And the word Alma can be translated in a couple of different ways. So yes, it can literally mean in the technical sense, a woman who has never had sex with anyone, a virgin, but it can more generally, and even more often it is translated or understood to simply mean a young woman of marriageable age. Now this matters a great deal, right? Because if a virgin gets pregnant, everybody's like, that's shocking. I'm going to take note. I want to know the deets. But if a young woman gets pregnant, it's like, yeah, that happens every day, right? The, the prophet Isaiah says, the virgin conceiving is going to be a sign that God is with us, right? And if it's just a young woman who happened to get knocked up, well, that's not much of a sign. We would be looking at signs all the time. And so I was like, that can't be true. 
that cannot be true. There's no way that the word doesn't actually mean virgin, right? So I pulled out my printed Bible, like I told you, and I was reading Isaiah 7, 14, and I noticed one of those little footnotes that I had mentioned a moment ago, when you read the word virgin. And you can pull out your Bible and you can look at it right now. Look at the NIV, NLT, ESV, lots of modern translations. And when you get to the word virgin in Isaiah 7, 14, there's going to be an asterisk or a little letter and you drop down to the bottom of the page and it's going to say, this word, Alma, can also mean a young woman. And I thought, uh-oh, I was so excited about my faith. God had transformed me. I was so happy and in love with Jesus. And in one minute, one article shook the foundations of my faith. Because I'm like, apparently it's all a lie. This stuff that I believe, the pastor that I respect so much, he's been hoodwinked or he's lying to all of us. I can't believe it. I was like really, really shook when this happened. So I started doing more research and I was studying and reading as much as I possibly could. And it turns out that's true. The word Alma in Hebrew can mean technically a virgin who's never had sex, but it can also simply mean a young woman who is of marriageable age. Man, I freaked out. I, st- I considered stop going to church. I wrestled with it. I felt like I had been, you know, lied to. And I don't know. I just couldn't trust my faith in that moment. Have you ever had one of those times in your journey with Jesus? I bet you have. Many of us have. You, you, you're going along and everything seems to be clicking and you feel close to the Father. And then you watch a TikTok video, or you catch a YouTube clip, or you come across a blog post or a professor at university makes some comment. He exposes or uncovers some detail. And you're like, excuse me? Why did Pastor Dan ever tell me about any of that? How, how come, like, have Christians been hiding this or are they just dumb? Do they not know this? When you come across these instances, it can feel like, you know, your spiritual life has been turned upside down. Can I just encourage you? When you have these moments, don't freak out. Okay? Don't freak out. There's always a good answer. Anytime somebody comes up with a gotcha, anytime somebody tries to expose your faith as a fraud, I want you to know there's always a good answer. In fact, um, what I've come to understand is the words of Proverbs chapter number 18, verse 17 are 100% true. Look at how clever this verse is. It says, the one who states his case first always seems right until another comes and examines what he said. Somebody can tell you, oh, your faith is based on a lie. Oh, this is a myth. It's a legend. They can can give you some little piece of evidence and they can sound very confident and very convincing in the moment. And when that happens, can I just encourage you, take a deep breath. It's okay. God's not afraid of their argument. You don't need to be afraid of their argument either. Your faith is not going to crumble simply because somebody raises an objection that you can't answer. Just because you can't answer it doesn't mean that nobody can answer it. There are good answers. So when you have these moments of doubt and fear, and when you feel like your faith is fragile and exposed, don't let that push you away from the faith. Let it drive you deeper into the faith. Let it cause you to study and to grow and to realize that our faith is solid. It's secure. It is trustworthy. There are good answers and there's a solid way to understand even the most confusing parts of the scripture. That's what I learned. I I kept studying. I didn't let it push me away from my faith, thankfully. And I came to realize 
there is really, really strong evidence that the word Alma in this passage and in the New Testament should be translated as virgin, someone who has never had sex. All right. Um, We know this for a few different reasons. We know that the original audience understood it that way. And I can kind of prove that to you this morning. Uh, You probably know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, right? And the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so you might think to yourself, oh, well, everybody in the first century around the birth of Jesus, that time frame in history, they all would have spoken Hebrew or they all would have spoken Greek. That's not true. In fact, most of the people in the first century, the the lingua franca, the common language of Jesus' people in Jesus' day wasn't Hebrew or Greek. It was Aramaic. It's kind of a a different language altogether. Now, some of them knew Hebrew because they'd gone to Hebrew school and they'd been taught the scriptures in Hebrew, but they didn't run around talking in Hebrew every day. Some of them spoke Greek, but many of them did not. And so in uh, uh, in the time around Jesus' day, there was a need for the Hebrew, trans, uh, Hebrew scriptures to be translated into a more modern language. Isn't that kind of funny? Because we think about Greek as like this ancient language. And they were like, no, Greek's the modern language. Hebrew is the ancient language. Okay. So there was a need around the time of Christ to present the scriptures in a way that the common person was able to read. And so they came up with something called the Septuagint. Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So it's a Greek version of the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament in a language that people around the first and second centuries uh, were able to read. The, The Septuagint itself was written roughly around the time of 250, now notice this, BC, before Christ, okay? So when Jesus comes on the scene 250 years later, Matthew 1, Luke chapter number 2, Most of the Jews in his day are reading a version of the Septuagint, not the Hebrew scriptures themselves. In fact, there are like 250 or so Old Testament citations in the New Testament, right? Quotes of the Old Testament in the New. And about half of those quotes are from the Hebrew scriptures, and about half of them are from the Septuagint or the Greek scriptures, because that was the translation that many of them relied on. Now, why does any of this matter? I'm sorry for the history lesson. You didn't come to church to go to school. I get it, okay? But let me show you why this matters. In 250 BC, The translator said, okay, we have to choose a Greek word to render the Hebrew Alma. So they had to decide, did Isaiah mean, or do we understand him as God's people to mean a young woman of marriageable age or a virgin? And this thing is a miracle. And they had a couple of different words in Greek that they could have chosen. One that meant young girl and one that meant actual virgin. And in the Septuagint, they chose the Greek word Parthenos. I'll put it here on the screen just so you can see that I'm not making it up and lying to you. Okay. The left is the Hebrew. The right is the Greek Parthenos and Parthenos in the Greek is the actual technical term for someone who has never had sex. It's virgin. If you're a bio major, maybe, you know, you like you were in sciences and stuff and in college, you might be familiar with the scientific term Parthenogenesis. Man, I feel smart today. Okay. Parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis is the phrase that we use to describe animals and plants that reproduce asexually. That is, there's not a male and a female version. It's just an animal and it, it um, uh, clones itself, essentially. Asexual reproduction. Parthenogenesis is the word that we use today. And that's the word parthenos that's used here. That the sign we should be looking for 
is a woman who is going to reproduce without a man. So 250 years before Jesus ever came on the scene, the Jews were looking for the sign of a virgin who would conceive and bring forth a son miraculously. This timeline is actually the other uh, thing that we, it's the only thing really that we need to know. If we want to address the claim that the uh, virgin birth of Christ was something invented many centuries after Jesus came along, all right? Because we go to Isaiah's prophecy. That happened in 750 BC. He said, behold, the Alma will conceive and she'll bring forth a child and people will say, God is with us. That happened 750 years before Jesus was born. Can you imagine a prophecy from like the 13 or 1400s today and it came true in 2023? That would be mind-blowing. And that's exactly what happened. We get to the Septuagint translation again, 250 years before Christ. And they say, nope, the sign we're still looking for, we're still waiting because it hasn't happened yet. But the sign we're looking for is a virgin who gets pregnant in a miraculous way and brings God's presence with us. Then Christ is born. And you'll notice there on the screen, Christ was born somewhere around two or three BC, um, when our, our ancient friends were doing the math on when Jesus was born and they were creating the Julian calendar and trying to count all the years BC and AD, we've kind of learned that they were off by like a couple of years, nothing too major or anything, but it creates this kind of funny and weird situation where Jesus was actually born before Jesus. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Jesus was born in about two or three BC. And then Matthew's gospel, the passage that we just read, it was written. We have fragments of the gospel that are dated to within 30 years or so of the death of Jesus. And we have entire manuscripts, the whole copies that are within the first century. So there's not enough time for the myth to have grown and accumulated and aggrandized over the centuries. This happened and it was written down soon enough that people who were alive in, in Nazareth, or Jesus' family, when they heard that Matthew was running around saying Mary got pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would have been like, um, excuse me, I was there, okay? I went to high school with Mary and Joseph. I know what's up. They got a little too frisky one night, and that's how that baby came around. Don't lie to these people. There were plenty of people that could have spoken up and proven and denied what Matthew says happened, and they didn't. Why? Because that's actually how it came to pass. Why? Because that's how God had predicted it would come to pass in all of the years leading up to this. So yes, Jesus was born from a virgin, but why? Why did God have to do it? Was he doing it the hard way just because he can? Was he flexing on us? He's like, watch this. You guys are not going to believe this. Was he trying to dazzle us with some kind of miracle? Well, Isaiah said that the virgin conceiving was going to be a sign, a sign that we should be looking for. And it's a sign, yes, that God is with us. But here's the deal. This sign of the virgin getting pregnant, it points in Isaiah, it points backwards every bit as much as it points forwards. Okay. Stay with me here for a moment. I told you Isaiah was the prequel to Matthew. But there's actually a prequel to Isaiah. There's a prequel to the prequel. The story of Christmas, God's planning for the Messiah to enter the world, it actually goes much further back than the timeline you see on the screen. If we go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we go to Genesis chapter number three, 
How many times have I told you guys, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are basically the most important parts of the Old Testament and arguably the most important parts of the rest of the Bible. You become an expert on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you will be an expert on the rest of the scriptures because it always seems to tie back to the creation and the fall. Okay, Genesis chapter number three, uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've uh, broken God's commandment by eating the forbidden fruit. God shows up, he pronounces judgment on Adam, on Eve, and then also he speaks to the serpent. He speaks to the devil. And in verse number 15 of Genesis three, he says this, I will put enmity, that's a very fancy word. Enmity means hostility, tension, fighting, war, beef. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, though you will bruise his heel. Okay, these words were spoken thousands and thousands and thousands of years before Jesus was born. And I want you to notice here, God says that there would be this hostility between the offspring or the seed of the woman. This is important. He doesn't say there's going to be hostility between your offspring and the offspring of the humans. He doesn't say there's going to be hostility between your offspring and the offspring of Adam. That's the normal way that a family would be spoken about in the Old Testament. It would be the man who stood as the figurehead for the rest of the family. You would never speak of a woman's offspring. She didn't have offspring. She existed to give offspring to the man. The family line, the family authority, the family wealth, all of it uh, flowed through the patriarch of the family. And yet, when God makes his prediction about the coming of the Messiah, he leaves Adam out of it altogether, and he says, no, 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 it's going to be the offspring of the woman that will be the sign that you should be looking for. Not only that, there's an even more interesting thing that's happening here. Um, And I don't want to be too like graphic or anything. Okay. So I'm going to try not to be, I'm going to see if I can get you to track with me without having to say anything that would require earmuffs for your kids. Okay. Um, So the phrase that's used here in Genesis three literally says not the offspring of a woman. That's a very polite way to put it. Uh, The phrase that's used here is the seed of the woman. Now, seed is a very particular term. And again, without defining it and spelling it out, seed is something that a man produces, but a woman does not. Are you tracking with me? So when God says the seed of the woman, everybody reading this, including Adam and Eve would have been like, wait, what? What is he talking about that? Women don't have seed. Men have seed. So how can it be the offspring or the seed of a woman that is somehow going to produce the Messiah? It's such a strange phrase, but the strangeness highlights the fact that the Messiah, the sign that we're going to be looking for is a child that is born uniquely to a woman. Not a woman and a man, but uniquely to a woman. The Messiah is the seed, the offspring of a woman. Genesis 3, it doesn't use the word virgin, but man, it sure seems to be describing one. How else do you get the offspring or seed of a woman without a man? The only thing that could mean is a virgin. I love this so much. It's Christmas right here at the very beginning. The prequel goes all the way back as far as you can go in the scriptures. From the first few chapters, God has promised that the Messiah would come and the sign we should be looking for is a child born to a virgin woman. That seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the serpent. 
I want you also to notice there that last sentence in Genesis 3.15. It says, um, you know, uh, there's going to be this hostility between your seed and his seed, or, or her seed, sorry. And then it says, he, meaning the woman's seed, he will crush your head, serpent, though you will bruise his heel. So the idea here is there's going to be a fight and the seed of the woman is going to be wounded in some significant but not ultimately fatal way. And the seed of the woman is going to fully crush the head of the serpent. He is going to destroy it and kill it utterly. That's Easter. Like in the original prophecy, the original prequel verses, we get Christmas and Easter at the same time. From the very, very beginning, God has been predicting that there will be a sign that humanity should be looking for. There will be a woman who miraculously conceives a baby. That baby is going to live a miraculous life in which he's never going to sin or do anything wrong. He is going to die a miraculous death. It's going to seem like he's been killed, but don't freak out. It's only a bruise. Instead, through resurrection power, he is going to crush the head of the serpent and finally, the enemy is going to be defeated. From the very beginning, God has told us the signs that we should be looking for. Man, that's beautiful. For thousands of years, God has promised the Savior, uh, the birth of the Savior and the death of the Savior would be a miraculous sign that as Isaiah put it, God is with us. Or as the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1, that the Messiah will save his people from their sins. I actually kind of like the way the book of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 10.22 says this, that Christ the Messiah came to give us pure hearts and to cleanse our guilty conscience. He came to give us pure hearts and cleanse our guilty conscience. I think that's an especially important reminder during the Christmas season. Because for all of the talk of joy and peace and love on earth, right? For all of that talk, Christmas is an incredibly stressful and for many people, guilty season. A season in which they carry and feel guilt exquisitely in a way that maybe they don't in the rest of the year. You might be saying, well, I don't, what do you mean, Dan? Like, I don't really feel any guilt around the Christmas season, but you might not have thought about it in those terms. Perhaps in Christmas's past, and you're on the brink of it today, you're, you're experiencing the guilt of feeling like you got to make everybody happy. And you're not, you're not keeping up with it. You can't spend all the dollars you want to. You can't give your kids every gift that you wish you could. And you feel guilt over that. Like, boy, I wish I could do better. I wish I could do more. And I can't. And that leaves me feeling guilty somehow. Maybe you have the opposite problem. You just spend, 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 spend. You give everybody everything they want. You try to make everybody happy. You're willing to do anything you possibly can. And then you got to deal with the fallout and the consequences come January. You feel the guilt of the Christmas season. Maybe it's the chaos of the Christmas calendar. I don't know what your family is like, but I'll tell you in our family, we've had many a year where we had to have um, robust discussion (laughs) about whose family are we going to spend Christmas day with and Christmas Eve with, right? And are they going to be okay that they got Christmas Eve instead of Christmas day? And last year we were Christmas day here. So this year we got to be Christmas day there. There's a lot of guilt that we can feel. Your family might be calling you and saying, Hey, you're not flying home this year. You're not going to be here for Christmas with us. They're making you feel guilty. Perhaps you feel guilty in your spiritual life. It's December. And you're like, man, I'm so hyped about Christmas. I love the idea of celebrating Jesus. But if I'm honest, I am not close to Jesus right now. I have drifted spiritually throughout the year. I am not where I know that I need to be. And I feel guilt over that. 
Maybe it's a specific sin. There's something you're struggling with, something you've been guilty of. You want to be free from it. You want to be forgiven of it. And you haven't quite been able to get there. You feel guilt this Christmas season. The book of Hebrews tells us one of the reasons that Christ came, one of the reasons he was born miraculously, lived miraculously, and died miraculously is so that we could be free of our feelings of guilt. But note this. It's not just that we can be free of our feelings of guilt. Jesus came to set us free from our actual guilt, the guilt from our sins, the guilt from our rejection and rebellion against God over all of these years, our mistakes, our habits that we've fallen into and we've never been able to break free from. Jesus was, why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? So that he could break the cycle of sin. He doesn't have the same sin nature that the rest of us do. I guess that means our sin nature comes from our dad. Make of that what you will. Um, (laughs) The idea, though, is that Jesus was born differently so that when he died, his death would be different. He wouldn't be conquered by sin, but instead he would conquer sin. He would become the sacrifice. He would become the, the substitute for every single one of us. And so if you're feeling feelings of guilt this year, whether it's feelings or it's actual, whether it's small things or huge things. And you say, you know what? I need Jesus. I need him to come into my life. I need him to give me the peace, give me the hope, give me the future that the scriptures talk about. I wanna give you the opportunity to receive him this morning. So if you would, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And if you say, that's me, Dan, I'm asking Jesus to come into my heart and to save me and to help me on a new path, then I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me, just in the quietness of your own heart between you and God. You might say, dear Jesus, today I accept you into my life. You are my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying to set me free from the power of my sins and the weight of my guilt. I give my life to you, and I pray that you would help me live for you every day. In your name, amen. My friends, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, like this Christmas is going to be better than any Christmas you have ever had. My wife's going to help you to understand how we can, you know, walk with you in these next steps. But if that wasn't you today and, you know, you've been following Jesus for a while, can I just encourage you with this? This Christmas season, give up on the idea that it's got to be perfect Give up on the idea that everything's got to go just right. Instead, focus on this. Jesus, you are the reason for this season. I'm going to make you the heart and soul of my celebrations, our family celebrations. However, everything else may turn out, I am going to ensure, I'm going to do my best to ensure that this December is all about Christ because he is the reason for our Christmas season. 